what happens with the child? You just dust them off, send them back to school. Nothing is done. Nothing is done. Now we have mandatory medical examinations, but the psychological um, assistance to the child, zip, zero, nothing. Welcome to the Under the Sycamore Tree podcast. I'm your host, Carla Moore of Mortal JA, and I am deeply honored to be part of this episode, The Kids May Not Be Okay. In this episode, we'll hear from leaders of three organizations from three different islands. Dr. Hazel Dabreo, founder and executive director of Sweetwater Foundation Research and Treatment Institute, based in Grenada. Chelsea Foster, founding executive director of Girls of a Feather in St. Lucia, and Joy Crawford, co-founder and executive director of Eve for Life based in Jamaica. We'll be discussing topics that some listeners may find triggering, including mention of suicidal ideation, child abuse, sexual abuse, intimate partner violence, HIV AIDS, and teenage pregnancies. We understand that these topics can be difficult to hear about and we want to remind our listeners that it's okay to take a break if you need to. We day up on the veranda. You day up on the veranda. Walk me your heart out your mind. Cock up your foot. And make her a good time. In the beginning, a bedtime story. Once upon a time, there was a universe. We are not sure about how it started or whether there is a reason. We don't know, for example, if space-time is ordered or disordered at the smallest scales, which are dominated by the weirdness of quantum mechanics. We are pretty sure that during the first level of a trillionth of a second, it expanded very rapidly, so that for the most part, it looked the same in every direction and it looked the same for every position. It was sameness everywhere except that particles start to blip out of nothing due to random fluctuations caused by quantum effects. Maybe in space-time, we are still not super sure about that. Then again, we are not super sure about this either. For some reason, these particles formed more matter than antimatter. That process, which formed a particular type called baryons, is called baryogenesis. From there, these baryons started to form structures, and from these structures, stars formed. Then the stars got old, and some of them died in super epic, rather fabulous fashion. They exploded into supernovae, making heavy elements like carbon and oxygen in the process. These elements went on to be the basis for all life on Earth. Black lives come from the same baryogenesis, the same supernovae, and the same structure formation. No matter what the lowest new melanin people say, black lives are star stuff and black lives matter. All of them. Hey y'all, this is Jackie. I write this podcast and I have a story for you. My grandmother is from Job's Hill that's a hamlet just outside of James Hill, a village in Clarendon Parish, Jamaica. She's in her late 90s, and she still tells me stories about Job's Hill. Or rather, she just started telling me these stories during the pandemic. 
In one of her stories, she told me about how, as a child, she would have to dress up in all white and long sleeves and take part in parades and outdoor activities, celebrating the jubilees of English monarchs. If you've read In the Castle of My Skin by George Lamming, it sounds like that, except co-ed. She said that on these days, they had to be perfectly behaved and could eat no more than cheese and crackers. She recounted these details when telling me about her mother's pregnancies and births. This was before independence, but after slavery. My grandmother had to salute the British monarch, sweat under Jamaica's hot sun. What freedom dreams did the newly freed Jamaican slaves have? Which direction did they turn to face the sun? What happens to a person, to a people, to a nation, when these are our dreams for our children? No longer enslaved, but not yet free? I find it very evocative to think of my child grandmother saluting the British monarch as a parallel for, for post-independence Caribbean nations. They're free, but somehow still saluting. Over 70 years on, Jerain, our producer and founder of Rebel Women Lit, and her classmates in high school were made to pay a fine if they were caught speaking Patois. What happens to a person, a people, a nation, when the quality of our freedom dreams turn into this? Dr. Shanda Prescott-Weinstein is a Rebel Women Lit fave. She is a particle physicist, cosmologist, and gender and sexuality scholar. She is also of Barbadian heritage. She gives us the map from our dreams for our children to how we get free. With this book, I hope to map out for myself and others an understanding that creating room for black children to freely love particle physics and cosmology means radically changing society and the role of physicists within it. Let's replace black children with Caribbean children. Now, stick up in. Okay, we will concede that these groups are not mutually exclusive, but for the purposes of this podcast, please just go with me. Okay? Also, replace physics and cosmology with black nations and the role of physicists with the role of elders. This quote can easily guide us in returning to our freedom dreams. Because, as Dr. Shanda goes on to say, creating a world where black children, or in this case, Caribbean children, can dream apply their curiosity and build their imagination might require us completely changing our society, right? Like including, but not limited to access to clean water, good food, access to healthcare, and a world without mass incarceration. What would it take for Caribbean children to experience their nations and the lands within them and the nighttime skies above them as beauty and power? What would it take for Caribbean children to know and experience their own curiosity and the dreams and imaginations of their elders and ancestors? It might just surprise you how central children and youth are to this work. Amira of Toledo Maya Women's Council tells us, Centering girls in Belize's Toledo district implicates Mayan power structures and divisions. In fact, for Amira, the internal divisions sown by European colonizers live on as fault lines so deep that they foreclose opportunities, even the very hopes 
community leaders, parents, and the national government have for girls to this day. Colonialism um, seems to be very much embedded in it, in terms of women participation. It's still very limited if we look at girl education. If we are to look at numbers and, and see the status of our girls compared to that of boys that are currently enrolled in school, the number is low. And as a community, I don't see the community taking a position to support girl child education. For them, it's an option. They, if they don't see girl education to be their responsibility to provide. It's an option that exists, but it's not up to them to be held accountable to ensure that girl education is achieved. I think there are only two women alcoholists. Okay. And well, chairpersons about two also. In the groups, you've had maybe one woman who sits on the team, mm -hmm. but it's not compri um, comprised of um, mm -hmm. an equal number of men and women representatives. And, and that's the tricky part with elections. And when you hear government say, oh, we're, we're, we're focusing on creating this balance. We have more women in leadership positions. What are we misogyny and patriarchy working? Is not even one little pint enough, but one true line from structural to systemic to family interpersonal, like it just everywhere. Because before a grown one encounters misogyny and patriarchy, she is shaped by it when she's a little girl. Exploring Caribbean childhoods in this way leads us to regional insights into law and justice. By focusing on parenting and childhood, we understand how we nurture and who is nourished. The world within nurturing and nourishment, law and justice helps Dr. Debreu and her team to uproot our notions of discipline and punitive punishment and experiment with restorative justice. So under this grant, um, we're, we're doing a project that's titled Under Five. And this is our gathering stories. The methodology we were using is gathering stories. Um, so we are going to be interviewing adult women over the age of four of 18 who have already come forward and disclosed that there was child sexual abuse in their youth, um, either under five years old or around about five years old. Um, and this is because in all of the child protection um, literature and treatment planning and policy planning, Although we have done so much with um, understanding child sexual abuse, the under five population has fallen through the cracks. So as far as we're, we're aware at Sweetwater Foundation, we're the first agency who has honed in on that particular demographic and wants to understand um, all about it. First of all, that it is a fact 
children begin to be um, sexually abused in, well, all over the world. It's not peculiar to the Caribbean at all. Um, around that age, around that very vulnerable age where a pattern of roaming begins and can last until they're 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, the reason we want to understand uh, that behavior is so that we can um, start working to prevent it. Um, no, nobody wants to believe that children that small can actually be assaulted um, and often quite violently. Um, but we have enough anecdotal information to know that it's true. So we need to do a science-based research to prove that it is. And what became more clear as years went by for me personally is that most women and men um, who come into clinic, so the, these are clinical reports, um, to disclose about their child abuse and work through the various issues. Most of them will report that it, it started when they were around five, under five, or just around five, maybe six, ten years old. But that age five kept cropping up. And I began to look for um, literature on this, and I just found a lot of anecdotal reporting. Um, a lot of colleagues had a lot to say about it. And, you know, people would ask, I would ask questions in the community, for example, just ask someone, um, what do you think about the incidence of child sexual abuse happening under five? And I would be met with answers like, oh yeah, sure. I'm sure there's one in every household that type of answer which you know you wouldn't expect you'd rather you'd prefer to have one say oh no that oh no i don't believe that but most people would say yeah 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 you know that's going on so i realized that what had fallen through the cracks is some hardcore scientific evidence-based research on research on this phenomenon of um abuse of children. So this is when I first approached WVL to apply for the financing to run this for three years. And, um, you know, as we go along, we're realizing it can't be three years because, you know, when we, you don't know what the findings will be until you complete the research and you have the data. What we know is, as it says in uh, so much psychological literature, let's just take the DSM, for example, which is the psychologist's Bible for diagnosis. So many major psychiatric disorders are now pointing to early child sexual abuse as, a, as the genesis. Um, and that means what that we need to take action when the child is at that age i think so this is what we have to figure out quite um vigorously because by the time adults usually get to us when they're 20 and 40 and 60 to tell what happened when they were five 
They've already suffered a lifetime. So we're very interested in whether we can develop a treatment approach that begins um, at the onset, begins at the incident, I should say, and really alleviates or or staves off that lifetime of suffering that adult victims of abuse um, describe. And then the research is going to um, be conducted in four territories. We were meant to tackle six, but the other two we just could not um, arrange. So we are in this project working for now because we intend to get to everybody sooner or later. But for this phase of the project, we're working in Grenada, um, Belize, uh, um, Antigua and Barbuda, St. Lucia. And then what about the indigenous people in Dominica and Guyana? Um, they have different stories to tell and we, we've heard a lot of the stories. It's very, um, it's very tender work. It's, it, it is a very heartbreaking um, problem. So parents and the judiciary don't know what to do about these children. You look at the little one there, the little one doesn't, you know, and, and, and people within the court system have said one of the most heartbreaking things is the mothers of these children kind of don't know how to handle them either and begin to treat them in a funny way. Where you would think that this is the time where the moms would want to hold and comfort and reassure and see about the psychological needs of the child. Some sort of thing has happened between them. Some sort of psychological thing where the mother values the child less and lets it be felt. And what tends to happen, as I said, we have a very um, punitive focus. We catch the bad guys because we know that a horrendous thing has been done. Um, Grenada leads the OECS in, in this very punitive approach. You can get a long time in jail, 13 years, 15 years for molesting children. But what happens with the child? You just dust them off, send them back to school. Nothing is done. Nothing is done. Now we have mandatory medical examinations, but the psychological uh, assistance of the child, zip, zero, nothing. I don't want to neglect to say that we have some fine, fine, fine professionals and, and women in this country who are working relentlessly on trying to keep women and children safe. There was a period in time where everyone was shocked because the issue wasn't out in the public. No one was talking about it. You know, Trinidad has that big movement called Break the Silence. We're a very silenced people when it comes to sexual issues. We're not encouraged, even as adults, to, to, to sit and have frank discussions amongst ourselves about our own sexuality and our own sexual health. 
um, much less when it comes to the shading darker issues. So we have never, we have been groomed into silence, all of us. When we talk about grooming, it usually refers to one man grooming one child for the adult pleasure. But don't forget that the other people in the family are being groomed as well. Mind your business. What are you asking me about that for? Go outside and sit down until I call you in. Oh, this child is a liar. There's a massive campaign. And you have to realize it's a massive campaign campaign because how else would it get? How else would would it take over? There have to be people who are complicit. And and unfortunately, the research that we've done so far with a, a team from Huddersfield University that's um, that was headed by Adele Jones and working with my current research director as well, Dr. Priya Maharaj from Trinidad. Ina Trotman Jamet in Barbados. We've already conducted um, some research on general um, sexual abuse where it's clear that some people in the system have been coerced into complicity. So that's how it can continue. If everybody stood up and was an outrage, how could the one person get away with it? Never, right? But there's the culture of silence. And then School teachers don't want to offend. People in the church want you to, you know, keep your family together, the Lord, this and that. So we have massive work to do in the, in the system, in the, in the culture as a whole. Where does it begin? Patriarchy. Patriarchy is, is it? Gendered violence, the expectation of the powerful elite. And it's just trickled out. There is some literature tying it all back to slavery. Um, I haven't seen enough of it to be able to say, yes, I'm going to saddle up that horse. But it's been going on wherever there is oppression, wherever people have been colonized and imperialized, certainly you find that it, it goes from, you know, the, the, the church and the state oppressing their their citizens, men oppressing women and being violent towards women, and then the children are always the ones who take the brunt, and they can't complain. They have no complaint to offer. So that's where it rests. It all rolls downhill and lands on the most vulnerable, the children. How do you feel about restorative justice for male juvenile sex offenders? I mean, we may not believe in carceral states over here, but also this might be another one of those conversations that's perhaps for us not as open as it should be. I, I didn't want to get away from speaking about boys. One of the groups we run is a group for adolescent males um, who have been accused of sex crimes. And this is a court-mandated program. So the young men come to us through probation. And this is a program that I deliver personally because there aren't many professionals who are expert in um, handling sex offenses. And, and I'm interested 
myself. So um, perhaps the best thing we can do for women is work with the men so that men don't keep coming for that. So it's a, it's a it's a tragedy and a disaster at, at coming you know at, at at every level, and I know that in Canada we have such a thing as a uh, what's it called a close in age exception or exemption, where this kind of circumstance is looked at because we know that sexual abuse. Uh, I've just said how devastating it can be for an entire lifespan but it has to do with power and control and patriarchy and gendered issues and so on and we need to also understand that there are young people who feel love for each other and explore in this way and there needs to be a, a different way of handling that kind of situation so in every group that I run, alongside the tough and rough guys that have already begun, you know, criminal behavior, robbing and violence and walking with knives and, and uh, that are in serious trouble and are forcing and coercing girls into sex with them, there, is all, there are also the, other, uh, the others who fall into the category that I just described. So I think it's very, very important work because you don't want to wreck our young men either. We don't want to ruin the lives of our men either. Um, so yes, it's important work and I fully enjoy doing it. And I'm hoping that time will permit for a, a standardized program to be put in place that can be offered to other groups in the Caribbean because surely we're not the only ones, you know, experiencing that there are young men who also are in trouble and, and, need, and deserving of, of help. Let's consider Sweetwater Foundation's restorative justice work alongside that of Girls of a Feather in St. Lucia. Let's head to Castries to hear about their mentorship and empowerment work with girls who have experienced the juvenile justice system. Founder and executive director Chelsea Foster points out that the ironic presence of patriarchy in St. Lucia's carceral system means that more resources are poured into the system for men. While this means they may be imprisoned at higher rates, they also have more restorative and reparative options. The system we have here. Um we don't really have a so we don't have a juvenile center for girls uh so we wanted to of course target girls who don't have access to maybe opportunities to people um to just spaces like this so we noticed of course we were working with i don't want to say privilege but um girls who i would say are comfortable I don't really need the extra support. So we wanted to target um, those persons who lacked access to resources, young persons who lacked access to resources. So we got in touch with the transit home. Um, and from 2018, we kept a relationship with them. However, in working with them, we noticed that there were quite a bit of gaps, a lot of gaps um, in terms of 
having the staffing capacity to um, respond to the needs that's an issue at the homes as well as our personal capacity um we noticed that there weren't really programs that were designed specifically for them outside like in communities so even though they try to engage different organizations you find that people are not equipped to support them and when i say that i mean using trauma-informed or healing-informed practices in their work so you're working with a child like everybody else but you're not really digging deep into um, the complexities of the issues they're facing to properly support them and that's like one of the biggest challenges we have here um, which kind of led us to you know the work that WPL is supporting right now so I know like my background we have a family of lawyers um and just zoning in a lot on that particular particular group because in St. Lucia there's primary focus the primary focus on boys in the juvenile justice is on boys in the juvenile justice system and we very seldom hear anything about girls and yes there's a huge um disparity in the numbers in terms of those who may be committing crimes although very similar crimes that girls and boys are committing but it's higher amongst boys um a lot of the funding goes towards them a lot of the programs are designed with them in mind even though they may say well it's a program that's for both boys and girls um and uh, you just don't really hear much about girls in the system and that's because one they are on programs to support them and uh, two, they just really don't have them in mind. We haven't started the process. So when we piloted the program in 2018, we had just designed based on our assumptions on what we felt they needed. Um, we had used a, a blended approach of mixing the girls to try to make it a comfortable environment, you know, where they weren't like targeted. So we mixed up the demographics and we noticed that there was an issue when we ran the program. So now we're working with another agency and international agencies working with us to now design programs that can do more support um, in those areas. Really. So career support, having career mentors, goal setting, more self-awareness, more um, understanding, accessing services, different services that are available to them, those sorts of things, the social protection system. There are only so many people that can support, support the girls while they're there. And they're relying on community, but the community is not paying much attention to them. So it can be damaging when you know you think a child leaves there thinking they're okay now, but they go back to the same circumstances. I think just growing up and, and having to fend for themselves when they leave these places without a proper support system. So the fact that it's just temporary fixes, like I said earlier, and it's a transit home, um, there needs to be ad additional support for them that we don't have in St. Lucia.
The work of Eve for Life out of Kingston, Jamaica, also centers on mentoring girls that have been criminalized. Their focus is on underage mothers who face near wraparound stigmatization. Like, why is it absolutely necessary to kick them out of school? E for Life is a non-governmental charity. Uh, we own the consciousness that we are a global impactful organization and that we are championing the world where the sexual reproductive health and rights of young women and girls are protected and upheld. We believe that we are an empowerment organization and our focus is to support the women and girls who we serve to release their own divine potential, therefore removing any potential habits of dependency, um, but rather becoming facilitating spaces for these women to take back their own lives. We provide is emotional support through mentorship, peer mentorship. The next track is our care support and care support includes the psychosocial part of the girl that we are serving. We look at how she's able to get support from her peers. We look at her livelihood situation. Uh, what is it that's required? Where is her life intersecting with these um, experiences? Is she a teen mom, for example? Um, she, does she need to go back to school? Uh, what kind of support is required for her? Um, does it mean that she needs to be given support for babysitting so that she can attend classes? Um, does she, will she be able to be integrated into the formal system or not? Does she need to learn skills? Um, does she need to have an income generating um, activity? So we look at livelihood issues. From a psychosocial perspective, we look at safety and security. Miss Joy Crawford, co-founder of e for Life, did not start out with a specific focus on girls. She just wanted to work on strengthening sexual and reproductive rights generally, but found a dearth of sexual reproductive health organizations focused specifically on girls. A major gap that seemingly wasn't noticed, which was odd, given Jamaica's high rates of childhood sexual abuse, or even just the basic fact that so many of us enter our sexual realms whether consensually or otherwise, as teenagers. You can appreciate that a girl of 15 who was impregnated by her father biologically and who ends up with a diagnosis of HIV experience um, clear issues around her physical safety. And so the safety of this young woman becomes paramount. Where will she continue to live? Who will she be living with? How will she be engaged? And if she remains in the same physical space, which unfortunately most of the clients do, how can she do it more safely? What is required? Does it mean that we need to do an intervention within the physical household? Um, who are the allies within that household that we can um, mobilized to protect her more. 
um, how do we interface with the authorities, the police, the agencies that deal with sexual offenses? Um, do we are we interfacing with our partners in the child protection entity? How do we make this young woman safer? There are times that we have had to do emergency housing um, on a short-term basis. It might mean interfacing with a, a partner who have a have a hotel, or we can say, can we get a can we get a room for a weekend um, to put someone up until they can be relocated. Um, so safety and security is something that we look at. And in our psychosocial part as well, we look at community, community and family awareness. We have found that a number of missing pieces of information exist, whether it's information around the facts about HIV or the facts about what happens to someone who is raped or the facts about how gender, for example, impact relationships and vulnerability um facts about the laws facts about policies that impact family facts about human rights issues facts about child care issues the, the the awareness in many instances is not there and so we found that providing or including awareness rebuilding in the work that we're doing for the young women whether with, with, with their family or their physical community that they're in, have at times um, yield great results. So for example, you may have a mother, a mother who is turning a blind eye to her girl who she says is out having sex with an older man. That mother doesn't know, for example, that under Jamaican law, she can be prosecuted and fined up to $500,000 or sent to prison because she has knowledge. Uh, we, we discuss issues of human trafficking with, with, within communities that raise an awareness that it's not okay and there actually are um, legal breaches that you are participating. A lot of the emotional challenges that our girls have are not physiological, they are not um, clinical, they are really social and emotional. So we introduce them to yoga, we introduce them to mindfulness, we introduce them to using art, we introduce them to nature, how to just walk outside and lock into a plant and calm yourself down rather than be angry and abuse your child, you know. Um, how do they spend time to listen to themselves, to hear themselves in, in chaos? How do they get a chance to do vision boarding? Um, so we use a number of what I like to call alternative therapy. Facilitating sexual and reproductive health, education and empowerment for girls and young women often means the work is about dealing with teenage pregnancy and underage sexual trauma. As a literary community, we are very much interested in stories, including the stories we tell ourselves and there is a twisted story attached to much of the work done by e for life We still have the culture of the virgin cure, that men who are infected with an STI, having sex with a virgin or a young girl would cure. So a vast, if not probably over 90% of the girls who 
are now living with HIV within our program would have gotten it from a male who infected them. Have you all heard of this virgin cure folklore before? Well, this and other related folklore is so prevalent to sexual traumas and the spread of STIs in our region that another one of our participants, Dr. Hazel DeBrio of Sweetwater Foundation, is even writing a book about folklore and childhood sexual trauma to address and combat the impact of these specific stories. Dr. DeBrio, big up you. We need you and the work you do. So, this is what encumbers our children, our families, our nations. If we're not seeing this straight, what are we seeing? Let's head back to Chelsea Foster with Girls of a Feather because it feels like Chelsea has activated this portal, which we can call that seeing straight. Just different theories understanding masculinity, implicit bias, intersectionality, just these simple things so that we can actually implement like whether it's social clubs or a training hub for different schools because for me i feel like it's one of the neglected areas where youth can really develop the understanding of gender equality i feel like we wait too long to expose strength to these things so i'm hoping that through this network we can kind of create this multiplier multiplier effect in the educational sector where we talk more about gender-based issues that are affecting children in that in that sense so that children are more aware children as beings who are as full of life and will and drive and intention as we ourselves are children can and should be able to advocate for themselves and for others they have the capacity to be feminists and to understand our hopes for justice, balance, and solidarity. If we can't see our small ones straight, how would they join us in these portals? If we can't see them straight, queer or not, pregnant or not, trans or not, disabled or not, marginalized or not, when do we start to see our own adult selves clearly? From this joy and eat for life, the first step is to facilitate stillness. This episode was produced by Rebel Women Lit and Queerly Stating with support from Australian Lesbian Foundation for Justice, Equality Fund, and Global Affairs Canada. Research and writing by Jackie Brown, script editing and project management by Dave Ann Moses, editing and sound by Jorraine Patmore and Sophia Chenier, and outreach by Ashley Daly. Remember to head on over to the show notes to find the details of the organizers featured in our episode and rebelwomenlit.com for additional references. Thank you so much for joining me, your host, Carla Moore, under the sycamore tree.